Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you Chapter Nine of the Book of Kohelet. Kohelet continues his exploration from the previous chapter about what humans can know and more specifically what they can't know. Ki et kolzen atanti et libi. There are just so many difficult uh, expressions, like a kolifnehem, and we'll see others, that it really makes the sentence difficult to to parse syntactically, semantically. It's a problem with much of this book. But let's give it a try. Indeed, all of this, meaning what he said previously in the last chapter about the impossibility of understanding everything, I set my mind to, natatitli be, and I clarified the following, v'lavur et kol ze. The word lavur probably comes from the word borer or livror to select something out of something else. Um, what is it that he uh, figured out, that he clarified? The righteous and the wise and everything that they do is in the hands of God. Even love and hate, no man knows all that is set to come their way. The Rajbam and other commentaries understand love and hate as approval or rebuke from God's perspective, not the love and hate that's created by humans, but the love and hate that is created by God as a response to their actions. Um, and that means that even the righteous and the sage, the Chacham, does not know if his actions in this world will get a positive or negative reaction from God, and then what will happen to them, Hakol Ifnehem, everything that God sets in front of them. Hakol Ka'asher Lakol, now there's a very difficult expression, Mikre Echad Latzadik Vilarasha Latov Tahor Vilatamei Vilazoveach Vilasher Enenu Zoveach Katov Kachote Hanishba Ka'asher Shavua Yare. Rajbam suggests that um, this expression, Akol Asher Lakol, is referring to the uh, previous sentence, which was Hakol Lifnehem, all is put before them, and what specifically is put before them. Everything is put before them, every possible, although according to Rajbam, it's not every positive or negative thing, but it's only negative things, since now we're only talking about how a person will be punished for all of their sins. However, I think what the verse means may be something a bit different. I think it means as follows. One thing can always happen to everyone. Hakol asher lakol. It happens to everyone, without exception. The same event, lakol mikre echad, the same event happens to both the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the pure person, and to the impure person, to the one who sacrifices, and to the one who does not sacrifice, to the one who is good, as opposed to the one who sins, to the one who makes vows, which you'll remember Kohelet doesn't think highly of, as rabbinic Judaism also does not think highly of it, and to the one who fears to make vows, that is, he won't allow himself to make vows for fear that he may not keep them. Now, the key to this verse is that word, mikre echad, because he used that expression in chapter 2 and it meant one specific thing and that is the thing that happens to everyone and that is at the end of their life comes death and Kohelet doesn't like it this is the worst thing among all the things that are done under the, under the sun meaning done to a person in his lifetime not 
that he's upset, I think, about death itself per se, but that everyone gets treated equally, even though some people really deserve better than others because of their behavior, because of what they do in this world. That is, not only will these ones who I just mentioned above be dealt with all the same, those who commit sins, those who are impure, those who are pure, those who do good things, but getting back to this verse, the following people is really offended that the same thing happens to them. Vigam lev b'neha adam malei ra v'holelut bilvavam b'chayehem v'acharav elamitim. So even when the hearts of mankind are filled with evil and there is inanity, foolishness in their in their hearts while they are alive. So what follows all of these people, all of mankind, is that they go equally to the dead. Now, if I'm reading this correctly, death really bothers Kohelet, and it bothers him from a cognitive standpoint, from the point of a thinker. It's not just that people die. The problem is that these people who are plotting evil and they're planning badness, whose hearts are full of evil and inanities, death is a great equalizer and therefore is distinctly unfair. As he said in chapter 2, How is it that both the sage and the fool die? That is equally. It's not the sinner versus the righteousness that bothers him so much, but in this verse it is the sage whose cognitive efforts are a positive force. They're educational, they help people, versus these people who fill themselves up with wickedness and inanity. And therefore, it's not fair that death, which erases all cognition, as he will say, is is equally doled out to both. This really confounds Kohelet. Ki mi asher yechubar el kol hachayim yesh pitachon, ki chai, hu tov min hameit. Because who even is still attached to all living things has some surety that as long as you're alive, you have something to rely on. As they say, quote, better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Now, this quote, this whole sentence seems to be at odds with what Kohelet said in chapter 7, which was that the day of one's death was better than the day of one's birth, assuming that you go into the grave after having made a good name for yourself. So you would think that a dead lion is better than a living dog. And I should point out, by the way, that dogs were not considered man's best friends in the ancient Near East. The dog was the lowest of the low animal, and being called a dog was the lowest of the low insults. I, but I think what's going on is different. It's, he's not contradicting himself from chapter 7, but he's saying he's approaching it differently than he did in chapter 7. What he's saying is that, well, there are one of two possibilities. According to the Rajbam and other commentators, what he's referring to here is sin. That is, it's better to still be alive when you can do tshuva, when you can repent for your sin, because after one dies, essentially that's it. So therefore, it's better to be a dog who's a sinner, who has the possibility of sinning, than to have been a great lion, but, you know, the ball game is over. And if you have any sins left, there's nothing you could do uh, about it. The other possibility, uh, which I, I kind of like, although it could be Rajbam fits better into more verses, but I kind of like this other approach, which is that Kohelet is talking about the 
the pursuit to understand the world. That is, he's going back to this idea of metacognition, metacognition. How do I understand the world and how do I understand that I can understand everything or not understand everything? And what he's saying is that once a person dies, even if he was a lion amongst men, then the cognitive game is over. That is, you've thought about life as much as you're going to think about life. As opposed to a dog who holds on to life, he can continue on in trying to understand everything that is going on. Either approach fits also into the next verse, verse 5. Because the living know that they will die. And according to Rajbam's approach, that knowledge will be used by them. Because they know they're going to be judged in the end, that can help move them to atone for their sins. But the dead are not cognizant at all. They know nothing. They have no more reward when memory of them is forgotten. Again, according to the Rajbam, it means that they can earn no more rewards, no gold stars for any of their actions, since the only place for accruing reward is in this world. And then after you die, whatever you get is what you get. According to my approach, then what it can mean is that um, as long as you're alive, there is still possible to understand something and to understand the, all about life, including to understand the fact that death is coming. But once you're dead, all of the all of everything that you have, have known essentially ceases, because eventually all human knowledge will be forgotten, or your contribution to human knowledge will eventually be forgotten. For the person who dies, both their love and their hate and their jealousy has already been lost, and they have no more portion ever in anything that happens under the sun, meaning in the land of the living. Again, according to Rajbam's approach, which really fits nicely here, this is referring to uh, uh, bad people, people who uh, are uh, jealous and people who wield hatred. And what it's saying is that whatever they've done in life is done, and they're going to get what they deserve. According to my approach, so every way that they affected the world is gone. Once a person dies, they can contribute no more. They have no more portion to contribute. And based on my approach that we're talking about cognition, then the injustice is that it's not right that the different qualities of people should have the equal effect on the world once they're gone. It's not fair that a wise man's knowledge is lost and the fool's amounts to, so essentially they both amount to zero and that's just not, that's just absurd. It's just not, it's not right. Of course, whether whether it's true or not, you have to decide. I mean, it could be that a person does leave an impression on the world, like Rashi himself, who wrote once, even though he's been dead a very long time, as I said in chapter one, his words leave on. But uh, this seems to be Kohelet's approach here, and in the first chapter as well, that eventually everything that a man contributes to this world on a cognitive level is, and maybe on the physical level as well, is eventually lost. This leads Kohelet back to his full-back position about enjoying one's portion while one is lucky enough to enjoy it. That is, enjoying life while one has been given the gift of God to actually enjoy it. However, there's one difference to this last time that we returned to this idea. We must have come back to this idea about four times. I would say that every time that Kohelet uh, 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 
paints himself into a corner with despair and with a sense of, I just can't figure any of this out, he falls back to this idea of maybe we should just enjoy life as it is. However, the difference here is that Kohelet is not speaking abstractly anymore. He's speaking in the second person. He's not speaking as a philosopher, but he's a teacher. He's exhorting his audience. So he says, you, you, you. Lech echol b'simcha lachmecha ushtei v'lev tov yeinecha Go and eat your food in happiness, take pleasure in it, and drink your wine with a good heart. It's true, tov lev usually means with a certain amount of drunkenness, but I think here it means just a certain amount of pleasure, since God has already found satisfaction in your actions. Now the word ratzah is used uh, by sacrifices, that if sacrifices are done correctly, they should be liratzon for God, they should be desirable to God, or some kind of satisfaction that people are doing the right thing. So... According to some, they think that Kohelet here is um, essentially being predeterministic. That man has no control over his fate from the day that one is born. One knows exactly what will happen to him. And therefore, you might as well enjoy what's coming to you because you have no control over it anyway. In that case, one has to translate the word Kvar as it literally appears, which means it already, everything you've already done, God has already, uh, you know, taken taken uh, desire out of everything you've already done, even though apparently you haven't even already done it. But I don't think that that's what the meaning is here. I think far is the future perfect here. What that means is that enjoy your life as it is until the end of it, because when you get to the end, God will have accepted, he will have desired or not desired your actions based on how you do things in this world and the happiness that you show things in this world. Now, of course, Rashi metaphorizes this to, you know, uh, when one eats in happiness, that means one learns Torah and one drinks knowledge. But even in the literal sense, one could say that one takes pleasure in the in the gifts that God gives them. That's something that uh, that uh, that God rewards as well. Um, this would certainly make sense uh, if this verse is talking, according to Rashi, to one who does mitzvot. Uh, and Rashbam also says, even though he doesn't say that, that these words are metaphors for the Torah and learning the Torah, he says they're literally to drink or to, to eat. However, this verse is talking, as opposed to the previous verses, we're talking about the jealousy of the, of wicked people and they're gonna get punished. This verse is talking about righteous people and that once they're finished being righteous, God will desire everything they did, so they should really focus on being, uh, righteous. So he takes it now a step further. Now that he is exhorting in the second person, he's not just philosophizing, but he's teaching. It's not enough for him just to simply say, uh, you know, enjoy your, enjoy your food, enjoy your drink. But he takes it a step further on how a person should show that they appreciate the things that they have in life. At all times your clothes should be white and the oil on your head should never run low. Uh, oil on the head must have been some type of uh, uh, um, mechanism for keeping it clean and proper. I mean, I guess like shampoo today, but not exactly. Uh, and of course, Begadecha Begadim shows that somebody is... is uh, um, behaving appropriately and always treating himself with respect and and carrying himself with respect and treating others with respect. Now, there's no doubt that this is probably a metaphor for various kinds of appropriate behavior because the word eight also indicates, that word eight, as we've seen before, indicates that God may come knocking at one's door at any time, so you should always be looking your best, and that's a metaphor for behaving your best. Re'ei chayim im isha asher ahavta kol yimei chayei havlecha, 
Appreciate life with the woman that you love all the days of your transient life that has been given you to live, literally under the sun, all your transient days. It's repeated twice. Call you may have lecha, and the duplication emphasizes the fleeting nature of man's life. Because that, meaning the happiness, the food, the drink, the intimate, loving relationship that one has with one's wife, that is your portion in this world. And it is a payment for the toil which you toil under the sun. As if to say there are two levels of reward by God if things work out well. One works hard and one gets the immediate reward of being able to see fruits of one's labor in an intimate relationship and children. And the second level that at the end, that God will look back at your life and in the world to come, he will reward you for all the things that you've done. Of course, that's not a literal reading of the text, but that could mean what the what Koel is trying to say. Rashi again metaphorizes and he says this woman is not a woman at all, but she's the Torah. Uh, and in fact, Kohelet will take up the important the importance of family intimacy in chapter 11, but it's probably best at this point to simply stick to the literal text. Kol asher do everything you find yourself capable of doing, which means if God gave you a gift to be a pianist or a surgeon or what have you, then go ahead and do it because there are no actions, nor plans, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in Sheol, the underworld, whither you go. Now, I've been hinting to the following point for a long time now because a lot of people say this indicates unorthodoxy and even blasphemy on the part of Kohelet, that after one dies, there's nothing, nothing but darkness. Um, But the truth is, the reason why almost every book in Tanakh does not discuss what happens after death is as follows. That's not the point of Tanakh. The point of Tanakh is human instruction for the following reason. Because once you get to the afterworld, nothing you do in that afterworld changes what kind of person you are. In fact, this is brought up by uh, uh, Rav Albo and his Ikarim and others, the afterlife, whatever that is, and I don't claim to know what it is, but the afterlife, whether it's Messianic times, whether it's floating around in heaven, whatever it is, none of that is a place to do good or evil. That is simply a place of reward and or punishment or a combination of both for everything that man does in this world. So man does not add to his mitzvot or his averot in the world to come. Whatever you get, all the gold stars and all the demerits that you calculate in this life is everything you're going to be. So from the instruction perspective, from Kohelet's perspective, it's not that there is no afterlife. In fact, he talks about an afterlife in previous chapters, or he, he hints to it, even though he doesn't mention it directly. But from Kohelet's point, Kohelet's point of view is how do I make sense of this world? How do I try to guide people in the absurdities of this world? How can I show people how to behave when things seem so crazy? And therefore, what happens after the grave is a non-starter. It's a non-issue. It's even, I might say, a black hole. Essentially, it's not, you leave it out of the picture. You turn it into the unknown. When the movie ends, the show is over. You can imagine all the things you want, but the movie can't care less what happens once the movie is over. And Koala can't care less what happens, well, not that he can't care less, but the point here is that everything afterwards simply fades to black. 
it's this world where man gets a chance to be good or bad, and therefore it's only this world which is enlightened, which which Kohelet shines his light onto. Now, in verse 11, Kohelet takes up a new observation, although I still think it connects to the, the quandary of death, but it adds um, it adds a new twist to it, which is that some death comes in a nasty and unexpected way, which becomes even more disconcerting to Kohelet because it makes man's life even more unsure. Shavti virao tachad hashemesh ki lo lekalima merotz v'lo lagiborim amelchama v'lo lachachamim lechem v'gam lo la nevonim osher v'gam lo la yodeim chayin. Ki eight, there's that word eight. The time will come. Vafega yikre et kulam. So after saying, listen, we don't know what's going to happen afterwards. We don't know how God is going to to balance the good and the evil, the love and the and the hatred. So the best you could do is behave in a good way and to appreciate what you have, and hopefully things will go well from there. The problem is that sometimes things don't go ex- as expected at all. And even if I, one could guess, oh, maybe I'll live to 80, it turns out that you can't even get close to that because of accidents. So, translating the verse, I re-examine what takes place under the sun in one's life. The race doesn't go to the speedy, and war doesn't go to the mighty, and sustenance doesn't go to the knowledgeable, nor does wealth go to the intelligent, nor does grace go to the insightful. Because the time of disaster, pega is like a sudden death, a disaster will come, or maybe can come, to them all. So an example is a racer who's whirling around the track, and there's no reason why he's not going to hit the finish line first, and all of a sudden he gets hit by a meteor. This approach only adds to the lack of control that a person has, as I mentioned before. And note also that the verse uses here, very very interestingly, it uses Chochmah, Bina, and Dat all together, the three facets of intelligence. Rashi says in the Chumash, actually, that these, when these three things are found together, Chochmah means skill, simply the, the acquiring of, of know-how. Bina means the ability to reason out new things, we would call a higher intelligence. And Yedda is even a higher level of cognition that Rashi points may actually come from sort of a divine inspiration. Um, this fits very nicely because essentially the verse says these higher level thinkers may not be shown grace. Apparently these higher level thinkers may have been shown grace by the authorities, may have been treated very well, such as in the story of Daniel and his friends in Bavel who were treated extremely well because of their insightful uh, high level knowledge. What he's saying is, guess what? You could have this high level knowledge and wind up being a poor guy that nobody comes to for any advice. Or you could have something bad happen to you in such a way that you never get around to reap the rewards of having helped people uh, with your insight. Kigam lo adam et ito kadagim chazim bim papach kahem yukashim adam Indeed, a man doesn't know his time, which means when his time is up. Much like a fish doesn't know when, when like a fish, like fish don't know when they will be trapped in a harmful net, uh, and birds don't know when they will be caught in the trap, so too is man snared in an evil time that will fall upon him suddenly and unexpectedly. And he doesn't really have a solution for this. He's simply saying that even if we could try to figure out that life is good, and I get 80 years, and I could do this in my 20s, and this in my 30s, and this in my 40s, you know what? Sometimes that doesn't work out either. 
Kohelet now moves on to another topic, which at once speaks about the importance of using one's brain, but also laments that intelligence and wisdom are not uh, are often not appreciated. The gam Another thing I observe regarding intelligence in this life under the sun, and it made a big impression on me. So there was a small city with a with a small population, and a great king came against it and lay siege on it and built large fortifications against it. And this, in the city was some poor man, and we've seen the word miskein doesn't mean poor as in no money, although it can mean that, and it certainly doesn't mean foolish, but it means somebody who's on a low sociological or political uh, stand. He's a, a he's a guy who's very low on the po- totem pole, and yet he escapes the city using his chokhmah, his know-how. I don't know. He digs a ditch underneath. He catapults, builds a catapult, and catapults himself over. He builds wings and flies away. Who knows how he escapes? And yet no one remembers that poor guy. That is, even though he survives. He's the only survivor as far as we know. No one remembers what he did. His know-how is not appreciated, especially compared to this great king with his overwhelming forces. That king goes down in history for beating up on this small town, which is why Coelho is emphasizing that it's a small town. And this guy who manages to survive, he pulls off the great escape. Nobody writes any history books about him at all. But I say, know-how is better than might. Even though, the vav there is, even though the wisdom of this nothing guy, this low on the totem pole guy was disgraced, that his people treated him and his knowledge with disgrace, and his words went unheard and unheeded, otherwise the whole city may have escaped. Now, it's not right. So what Kohelet advises is as follows. Divrei chachamim benachat nishmaim, mizaakat moshel baksilim. The words of sages can be heard gently compared to the screams, the barked commands of a ruler who is counted among the fools. Now, Rav Yosef Karo thinks that, that the word nacha means that they're easier to accept than the barking of the king. But I think the story that he just told about the besieged city doesn't support that because nobody listens to this poor guy. Rather, I think Kohelet is saying that the challenge is this. When a true sage speaks, often the words are, are spoken low and humble, you know those types of real of those real sages and wise men and great rabbi. They speak sometimes very low and humbly, and nobody really pays attention to them because there's no megaphone by them. It's the big politicians that get the megaphones, um, and, and even though they this, through that megaphone, these politicians, the kings, they speak pure idiocy. They get less listened to. Why do people listen to? Because they've got the volume on their side, and and the words ring clear, even if they are not sound, and sometimes even idiotic, as opposed to the words of the chacham, which are hard to hear. They're spoken low in volume, and sometimes they're hard to accept or understand. It reminds me of that famous scene in The Lord of the Rings where, where it, it was specifically The Return of the King, the third movie, where the steward of Gondor is freaking out and he's screaming at everyone to abandon your posts, abandon your posts. And the soldiers start to listen to him because who else are they going to listen to until Gandalf comes and he smashes the steward over the head and then wiser heads take, uh, take control. The next and last uh, verse of this chapter really begins a new section, which we'll continue into the next chapter. And it segues on this idea of war. Tova chokhmah mikli krav. Wisdom, knowledge, know-how. Chokhmah, just like we saw before, is better than all the tools of war. Why? Because a single smart word 
a single intelligent plan can turn the tide of war against a massive buildup of weapons. However, one cannot deny the rest of the verse, that by not acting wisely, but conversely, one sin can destroy much good. What was, what's the expression? It takes a thousand years to build Rome, but only uh, a few days to knock it down. This theme will be, continue in chapter 10.